<clears throat> Turn please to Ezekiel in chapter 16. Ezekiel in chapter 16. It's a lengthy chapter. I'm not going to read quite all of it, but it's a lengthy reading. Ezekiel in chapter 16. Upon finding that, please pray with me. Father in heaven, we've opened uh, your word before us, and now I pray that you would open our minds, uh, most certainly our hearts, um, our affections towards you and towards your word, and I pray that we're able to hear from you, to receive from you this. Therefore, uh, for that to occur, I must pray that you work in our hearts, that you do a work of grace that enables us to, to really hear and to embrace all that you have for us. So, Father, help us hear and, and receive in Jesus' name. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 1. <clears throat> the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, confront Jerusalem with their detestable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown into the open fields, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by and saw you kicking around in your blood, and as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, Live! And I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up, and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew, and you were naked and bare. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you, I saw that you were old enough for love. I spread the corner of my garments over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms, a necklace around your uh, your neck, and uh, put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey and olive oil. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty, because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the Sovereign Lord. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by, and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. Such things should not happen, nor should they ever occur. You also took the fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of my gold and silver, and you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes to put put on them, and you offered my oil and incense before them. As the food I provided for also the food I provided for you, the fine flour, olive oil, and honey I gave you to eat, you offered as fragrant incense before them. That is what happened, declared the Sovereign Lord. And you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me and sacrificed them as food to the idols. Was your prostitution not enough? You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to the idols. In all your detestable practices and your prostitution, you did not remember the days of, our, of your youth. 
when you were naked and bare, kicking about in your blood. Woe, woe to you, declares the Sovereign Lord. In addition to all your other wickedness, you built a mound for yourself and made a lofty shrine in every public square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty shrines and degraded your beauty, offering your body with increasing promiscuity to anyone who passed by. You engaged in prostitution with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, and provoked me to anger with your increasing promiscuity. So I stretched out my hand against you and reduced your territory. I gave you over to the greed of your enemies, the daughter of the Philistines, who were shocked by your lewd conduct. You engaged in prostitution with the Assyrians too because you were insatiable. And even after that, you still were not satisfied. Then you increased your promiscuity to include Babylonia, land of merchants, but even with this you were not satisfied. How weak-willed you are, declares the Sovereign Lord, when you do all these things, acting like a brazen prostitute. When you built your mounds at the end of every street and made your lofty shrines in every public square, you were unlike a prostitute because you scorned payment. You adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. Every prostitute receives a fee, but you give gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from everywhere for your illicit favors. So in your prostitution, you are the opposite of others. No one runs after you for your favors. You are the very opposite, for you give payment and none is given to you. And therefore, you prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because you poured out your wealth and exposed your nakedness and your promiscuity with your lovers, because all your detestable idols, and because you gave them to your your children's blood, therefore I'm going to gather all your lovers with whom you found pleasure, those you loved as well as those you hated. I will gather them against you from all around and will strip you in front of them, and they will see all your nakedness. I will sentence you to the punishment of women who commit adultery and who shed blood. I will bring upon you the blood of vengeance of my wrath and jealous anger, and then I will hand you over to your lovers, and they will tear down your mounds and destroy your lofty shrines. They will strip you of your clothes and take your fine jewelry and leave you naked and bare. They will bring a mob against you who will stone you and hack you into pieces with their swords. They will burn down your houses and inflict punishment on you in the sight of many women. I will put a stop to your prostitution and you will no longer pay your lovers. Then my wrath against you will subside and my jealous anger will turn away from you. I will become cal- I will be calm and no longer angry. Because you did not remember the days of your youth but enraged me with all these things, I will surely bring down on your head what you've done, declares the Lord. Did you, not act, did, did you not add lewdness to all your other detestable practices? Then if you look in verse 59. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. <clears throat> I will deal with you as you deserve because you've despised my oath by breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth and will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both those who are older than you and those who are younger. I will give them to you as daughters, but not on the basis of my covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you will know that I am the Lord. Then, when I make atonement for you, for all you have done, you will remember and be ashamed, and never again open your mouth, because of your humiliation, declares the Sovereign Lord. Now, Ezekiel, as a word from the Lord again. And this time it's in the form of an allegory, a story that is arranged in such a way so as to describe something. 
So you remember that here we find ourselves, Ezekiel, he's in exile, and he's prophesying to the other exiles. You remember, the northern kingdom had been destroyed in 722 B.C., and now we're about 692 B.C., and Jerusalem is going to be destroyed in just a few years. Do you remember all of that because of their sin and their unfaithfulness to God? Do you remember that the Babylonians have already come against Jerusalem a couple of times, and there's been one exile with Daniel and his friends going, and then a second exile with Ezekiel and many others as well. So thousands have already been exiled out of Jerusalem, and Ezekiel is with those exiles, and he's prophesying to them, and now this word comes. And it's an allegorical word, and it's a word that describes the relationship between God and Jerusalem. And a very solemn one, obviously, indeed. But the allegory is this. He says, our relationship is, is like this. It's as if there was a child, unwanted and abandoned, a little girl. And this child, an unwanted little girl, was abandoned to a field to her own death. She was not even given the most rudiment care. She was just left there to die. The cord, in a sense, therefore, not even cut. Left to die. Not applied anything to her body to, to clean her, but simply left to die. And he says, then a man walks along and he sees her. He sees this little child and abandoned to die and he, and he takes this child and he cleans her. And he brings to her health so that she can, she can live. Then a time goes and this little girl grows to become a young woman and he sees her again. And now he sees her and no one will marry her so he takes her to be his own. And he makes her his Bride, and he marries her, and in so doing, he lavishes on her everything a woman could ever imagine. So much so that she comes, becomes more beautiful than any other woman around. He builds her a beautiful home, he gives her beautiful clothes, he puts upon her beautiful jewelry, he gives her fine food. And she has everything that a woman would need. In fact, everything even that a woman could possibly desire, it seems so much so that she's the envy of all the other women around. And then, she takes all that he has given to her, all the beauty that is now hers, the very life in her breath, the wealth that she has, the jewelry that's upon her, and she uses it then to attract other lovers. And she uses it to attract other lovers in such a way that she's even attracting his own enemies to his humiliation and arouses jealousy, obviously, in this man. Not irrational jealousy, but the normal kind of jealousy that one would have when one you love is throwing away their lives and destroying their lives and spending your love on that of another. And so his jealousy is aroused. And we see this picture of, of evil, really, of this woman and all that she's doing to humiliate this Man, but it's even worse than that, you see, because, if I could say this gently, he says, you're not even a reasonable prostitute because you're not even accepting payment for your favors. In fact, you're actually paying those who come to you. And so we see this picture of obviously great immorality, but tremendous evil. And it's very disturbing to us. And then it's as if God turns to Jerusalem and says, 
That's what you've done. Because you see, this story isn't really about sexual immorality at all. I mean, there's sexual sin in the context of Jerusalem, but that's not its real point. God's real point is that I've betrothed myself to you, Jerusalem. I've, I've made you my bride. I've become your husband. And here's how you've treated me. Because you see, there was a time when you weren't. And yet there was one, this pagan man, this, this worshiper of idols named Abraham. And I came to him and I called him and I made him my own. And I moved in him in such a way that he responded in faith and I counted faith as righteousness. So he became part of my own and and I made promises to him and in so doing I, I delivered his people from famine and from slavery. And I brought them out and I gave them my law, the very wisdom of my heart, godliness before them that they were to live. And in this law was a way that they could live in my presence and be forgiven of sins. And though they had sinned still, I would take the life of another and not their own and they could live in my presence, and I with them. And they could follow my law and so be blessed. And I would establish my very presence among them in Jerusalem itself. And in such a way that that if they followed my law and if they joined me in covenant, they would be blessed. And indeed they were. And more prosperous than any other nation. The envy of all the nations. And then, they began to spend all that God had given her on the love of others. We read, for instance, in 1 Kings, in chapter 11, of what happened during the reign of King Solomon. 1 Kings 11 and verse 1. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women beside Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David, his father, had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And Molech is always referred to as the detestable god because Molech had an insatiable passion and desire for children and required those who worshipped him to sacrifice, to sacrifice their children to him. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. So God said, this is what happens. I I made you beautiful and yet you, you used your beauty to attract other lovers. I made you prosperous and you used your prosperity to attract other lovers to yourself. In fact, you went after them and bought them so that they would come and be intimate with you and and you with them. See, it isn't about sexual immorality. It's about spiritual adultery. In fact, this, this passage in Ezekiel 17 is so strongly worded in some versions. Lately, I've been reading out of the English Standard Version, but I didn't because, because it's so strongly written there, even, even more than here, that, that frankly, I felt uncomfortable using some of the language that's in that particular version in a crowd that contains children this morning. In fact, it was Charles Spurgeon who said of Ezekiel chapter 16 and 
its counterpart, chapter 23, that this could scarcely be read in Victorian England. But you see, that's the point. That's where our mind goes. In fact, the most telling, I think, of all the verses here are verses 14 and 15. Verse 14, And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty, because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the Sovereign Lord. What a wonderful gift of a husband to his wife. But then, verse 15, But you trusted in your beauty, and you used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by, and your beauty became his. And so, God in his Righteous judgment does this, verse 35, notice. Therefore you prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because you poured out your wrath and exposed your nakedness and your promiscuity with your lovers, because all your detestable idols and because you gave them your children's blood. Therefore I'm going to gather all your lovers with whom you found pleasure, those you loved as well as those you hated, and I will gather them against you from all around and will strip you in front of them and they will see all your nakedness. And I will sentence you to the punishment of women who commit adultery and who shed blood. I will bring upon you the blood of the, the, the blood vengeance of my wrath and jealous anger. And then I will hand you over to your lovers. And they will tear down your mounds and destroy your lofty shrines. They'll strip you of your clothes and take your fine jewelry and leave you naked and bare. They'll bring a mob against you and will stone you and hack you into pieces with their swords. They'll burn down your houses and inflict punishment on you in the sights of many, many women. And so that is the judgment of God then upon them. And again, I've shared before, and I appreciate your kindness to listen with me to these passages. Because this is not the kind of passage that I would pick normally if I were sitting down on a Monday saying, what should I preach next Sunday? But because we move along in these books, I think we have to face the reality of God. And the, and the reality even of ourselves. So, what shall we say? First, I think this, that if this is how we understand God's heart, and if this is how we understand sin and evil against Him, then it appears that God is cer certainly, and we've been saying this all along, justified in His judgment. It's not a casual thing with God. And when we think of it like this, it puts it in a perspective that enables us to say, yes, those who would act such against a lover deserve this judgment. Secondly, we see this, I think, that though sin seem attractive, it's very deceptive, and its desire is to kill us. You notice that passage I read beginning with verse 35 on through verse 41 about the judgment and basically God is saying here's what's going to happen all those that you've reached out to all those that you uh, that you have loved will ultimately turn against you those are the very ones that will come against you and destroy you and we must understand that we must understand that, that when we build alliances with wealth and materialism and when we think just like the rich fool thought a little passage I read during our offering time just as he thought that he was secure because he had enough, because his, his, his barns were full and he could build other barns and fill them up even more completely than that. He thought he was safe. He thought all was well. But his very wealth would come back and be a testimony against him, a witness against him, and ultimately destroy him because it would distract him 
from laying up treasures in heaven. It would distract, distract him from being rich towards God. Oh, he was rich in the things of the world, but that did him ultimately no good. In fact, that very thing, that very wealth turned against him and destroyed him. We think in the context of, of our minds, our own intellect, and how it is that, 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 that our minds can even distract us because we can use them for evil rather than for good. And we can think ourselves so smart. And we can think ourselves so wise. And we can think ourselves that we've got it really figured out and everything is okay with life, but then we realize it isn't and those very thoughts will come back and destroy us. We think in the context of, of lying. And at any one point in time, a little lie may seem like such a good thing and so convenient and so helpful and so attractive because it gets us out of a difficult situation or it keeps us from embarrassment. But then we realize that very lie, once known, will come and destroy us and it will turn against us. When we withhold forgiveness, it may feel so good at the moment. But yet that very unforgiveness will breed in us a bitter spirit Sexual immorality, we think, seems so desirable at the moment and yet that very thing will come and breed heartbreak and broken relationships. And even in our culture, disease and death. So all of these things to, to come against us. We trust in our health, but yet our health will ultimately fail us. Our health will ultimately turn against us and we will, we will die. And in the midst of this, God is saying, look, don't build alliances. Don't trust in others. Don't go to them for what I can give you and what I can give you alone. In fact, this, this allegory of husband, wife, and, and adultery is a, is a very common one and a very helpful one. In Scripture, for instance, uh, James writes, in James in chapter 4, in verse 1, he writes, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You don't have because you don't ask God. When you ask, you do not receive. Because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. You see, James there isn't talking about sexual immorality so much. But he's saying spiritually, you're being unfaithful to this one who loves you. And so he uses this expression. Uh, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? He's saying when you build alliances with that which the world can give you and that which the world affirms in you and you trust in that and not in God, that's spiritual adultery. And it may not seem so bad said like that, but think back to Ezekiel chapter 16. What this means is that you are prostituting yourself spiritually. What this means is that you're taking that which God has blessed you with and you're spending it on others. And you're allowing others to take that, those gifts from God. And you're putting your trust in them. And he says, don't do that. In fact, this is a great danger in the context of, of people in the church. It's a very chilling passage. So I'm doing a chilling passage. I'd rather have cross-reference that's a chilling passage. 
In Hebrews in chapter 6, the author of Hebrews is writing to a group of Hebrew Christians, probably, um, and he's using, by way of illustration, ancient Israel very often. And in using ancient Israel as this illustration, he's saying, don't be like them. Especially don't be like those ones who hung around the community but never came to faith. Those who were around the community and received the blessings of the community but never came to faith. So Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4 says, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they're crucifying the Son of God all over again and, obs- and, and subjecting him to public disgrace. Now what's, what's meant there? What's meant there, if you can think back into ancient Israel, he's saying, listen, there are those there who experienced the goodness of God around the community. They tasted of the heavenly gift. They ate the manna. They stayed alive. It was great, but they never came to faith. They received the gift of God, but they never came to faith. These very ones who saw the power of God amongst them as, as they went through the Red Sea, as they were delivered from their enemies in the wilderness, as all the miraculous things that took place amongst them in the community, they benefited from that, but, but, but they, never, they never came to faith. They never bowed their knee. They never submitted to God. They simply used those gifts and spent them without thankfulness, without a heart of submission to God. He says, don't be like that. And I have to think, how is it that we have used all that God has given to us, perhaps, and spent it on that which doesn't glorify Him? How is it that we have used our our beauty, our intellects, our money, on things which are not pleasing to God, but yet would actually invite his enemies into our very lives. How we've used our time and so forth and so on. You fill in the blank in the context of, in the context of your own lives. And I, I think of that. And the devastation, and the devastation really of that. In fact, we're in danger in the church a number of years ago. Uh, when we first began as a church, we began to look for Sunday school curriculum for our children. And one of the things that we found very quickly is that we could find Sunday school material for our children that would raise up really nice kids. It would raise up kids who didn't lie, didn't cheat, didn't steal, didn't go with girls who did. That's not the rhyme. But very nice kids, responsible kids, hard-working kids. Kids that might grow up and look nice and dress nice and work hard. And you know what? There's profit in that. They'll, they'll, they'll do well in America in that context, growing up very socially acceptable, very nice kids. But that isn't it. That's not what we're about. Oh, I don't want to grow up bad kids, but you know my point. The point is, that's really not what we're after. These children who fit this nice little mold and grow up nice, socially acceptable Americans who do well, that's not the point. The point is that they come to faith in Christ. The point is that we teach them that, that God is perfect and that they're not. And that this, this law of God, that is the very wisdom of God and life-giving is that which first comes to us and convicts us of our sin. We can't be truthful as we're to be truthful. And this law is to bring us to our knees, you see. 
Another great danger in the life of the church is that people come to us with broken marriages and we fix them. Now, that isn't a bad thing necessarily, but if we fix their marriage and they go on their merry way thinking, I'm fine now, the truth is they aren't fine now. They need to come to faith in Christ. People come to us with financial difficulties and we can help them with their financial stewardship. We can give them counseling. We can help them say, here's how you do all of this and why. But unless they come to faith, it really doesn't ultimately help them just because their finances are now in order. The great danger, you see, is for us to use the wisdom that God has given to us and use the wealth that God has given to us and use the integrity that God has given to us and use the wisdom and all of that that God has given to us and not use it for His glory gratefully, thankfully, but use it rather to increase trust in ourselves and to build alliances with the world. That's the danger. Now, when I get to this point, I have to ask this question. If that was true for them, and I'm getting a hint that it's true for us, is there any hope? And the answer is yes. Chapter 16, in verse 60. Marvelous little word. Yet, in the NIV. In other words, after all of that, you would expect God to say, therefore, given... All of this, I mean, think about it emotionally. Allow your emotions to run on this one. Think of being the husband whose wife has done this and prostituted herself to all these others. And you would think then that God would say, because of that, I'm simply going to destroy you and that will be the end of you. Verse 60, yet... I will remember the covenants I made with you in the days of your youth and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. After all of that. And you might say, well, didn't God already establish a covenant with them and if he established a covenant with them and it didn't work, why should I be excited about another one? Why should I be excited about this everlasting covenant? And the point is that he did establish a covenant with Israel but it didn't fail. Not on his account. In fact, he will save all that he's always promised to save. In fact, that covenant, he knows, we now know, was not covenant in completion, but covenant in shadow. Covenant that would point to another. Covenant that would point to the one who would come. And it would be this everlasting one who would bring to us all that God had promised. And so he says, this, yet I will remember the covenants I made with you in the days of your youth. And that covenant was to save all who would believe in him. And I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. And then verse 62. So I will establish my covenant with you and you will know that I am the Lord. Then when I make an atonement for you. For all you have done. And that's the point you see. He said I'll make an atonement for you. That is, I will satisfy my wrath against you. And I will make that atonement. I'll take that punishment. When I make an atonement for you, for all you have done, you will remember and be ashamed and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation, declares the Sovereign Lord. You see, in this covenant with our Lord Jesus, He becomes our groom and we His bride, for instance. In Ephesians in chapter 5, 
as the Apostle appears to be teaching us about marriage, he's really teaching us about Christ and the church. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. Oh, there's stuff here we learn about marriage, but we learn much more about our relationship with Christ and Him with us. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the Word and to present her to Himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless in His sight. He's saying, listen, I'm going to take you as one who is abandoned and left for dead. And I will cleanse you. And I will wash you. And I will care for you. And I will make you beautiful in the very sight of God. But notice, in verse 63, he says, Then when I make an atonement for you, for all you've done, you remember and be ashamed and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation, declares the Sovereign Lord. And we ask, why is it that once he's made atonement for us, that then we'll still be ashamed, unable to open our mouths? What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that we'll still be in our guilt because the atonement will take away our guilt. It doesn't mean that our mouths will be shut in every context because we're commanded to pray thus we must open our mouths to pray. We're commanded to praise thus we must open our mouths to praise. We're commanded to witness thus we must open our mouths and speak when we witness. So how is it that our mouths will be shut and we'll still be ashamed after this atonement has been made? I think this. Our mouths will be shut when any word of our goodness is mentioned. Because we will think about our past and we will realize it's not our goodness, but His. And the shame will be as we think about our sin. No guilt, but certainly remorse. Certainly sadness. In the context of our own sin. The guilt is taken, but our mouths closed. In fact, if anyone speaks to us about our own goodness and congratulates us on our own good life, our mouths will, be, will have to be closed except to open them simply to say, Jesus, it's his goodness and not our own. How, of course, do we know that this is true? What is there? to remind us, to enable us to see, and that is when the Lord gives to us this table and his sacraments in order to highlight, to remind us, to think our thoughts, to enable us to see all that Christ, all that Christ has done. He, our groom, we, his bride, you remember on the night that he was betrayed, the scripture tells us that our Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it and as he did, he gave it to his disciples and he said, this, is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me that it is a think. Think about what Ezekiel said. Ezekiel said atonement is going to be made to remove your guilt. In the same manner he took the cup. Again, after giving thanks, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant. 
in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember what Ezekiel said. Ezekiel said that God would make atonement. He would satisfy his wrath. He would take that penalty himself so that we could be forgiven. And as we look back at our own sin, it brings to us sadness and remorse. We know the guilt has been taken away. And when someone comes to us and says, Oh, I see your spiritual beauty. We know from whom that spiritual beauty has come. When someone comes to say, Oh, your thoughts are so godly and wise. We know from whom those thoughts have come. When someone sees us and says, Your freedom to walk with God is so admirable. We know the one who has freed us. And our mouths are closed in humility, never to speak of ourselves. But the moment we open them, we speak of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven. We open our mouths now to pray, soon to eat and sing because of the goodness of God and not our own. Father, we're here to proclaim and declare the goodness of Christ. Father, it brings us sadness. Even as we think upon this story, it brings us sadness first that Israel has disappointed you and hurt you and broken your covenants. Yet our minds can't stay there long till we see ourselves in the midst of this. And even we have broken your covenants. But you are the faithful one. And Father, we see even now that you've come to us, all those who profess faith in Christ, you've come to us and is left for dead You've given us life. And though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, yet you made us alive together with Christ. And Father, we pray even now that all the gifts that you have given us, all, the, all that you have bestowed upon us, Father, that we would not use to entertain your enemies, but to glorify you. And we would trust in you and you alone in grateful thanksgiving for all that you have done. So, Father, I pray even now that you would take this bread and this juice and you would use it in such a way as to point us to Christ, that we may feed upon him by faith, that we may experience his very presence even now, the great assurance that atonement has been made. And we needn't speak of our own goodness in your presence. We need only to speak of the goodness of Christ and His goodness and His atoning sacrifice alone is all that we trust in for it's all that we need. We're grateful. In Jesus' name, Amen. To speak of the holiness of the Lamb and the goodness of Christ and we give you thanks. And we pray that we would receive from you all the blessings of Christ. And in our receiving of them, 
that you would bring up with us such great joy, thankfulness, and desire to please you. That we would use that which you have given to us in a way that brings you glory. That people would see us and not marvel at us. But Father, that they would see us and marvel at you. And enable us, Father, always to reflect our Lord Jesus Christ and his great blessings to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you that there are elders available to pray in the office area, so please take advantage of that. The response to the benediction is for us to sing again this great doxology, the great praise to God. So please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence, and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion,